It's August 26, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First up, we'll hear about two upcoming events. Melly James will join us on the line to tell us about tomorrow's Hawaii Venture Capital Association lunch panel focused on the energy sector. Then Ponius Q and Brandon will be here to preview the Makers and Tasters event coming up in Kaka'ako. And finally, for the rest of the hour, we'll explore the state-of-the-art in artificial intelligence beyond Siri, Cortana, and Alexa. What will strong AI do for us? Chris Sullivan and Jeff Watamo from Oceanit are here, and we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation as well. So please be ready to call in or tweet after the break. And of course, first, we want to welcome Mela James. She's on the line. I mean, usually we have her you know, like in the studio, but we're trying something different. <laughs> having her call in. She's on the line. and, and Hi, she's, Bert. Hey, how's it going? And we'll uh, have her talk a little bit about the uh, Hawaii Venture Capital Association lunch and the energy panel. Welcome to the show, Mele. Thank you. Um, I'm Just so you know, I'm actually right in the middle of, of driving, and it's like a foot deep of water. So oh, geez. It's out here right now. <laughs> <laughs> we hope we can keep you yeah. and keep you safe. <laughs> now you're, uh, yeah. I hope you're not, you know, like. Well, we won't get into the details of what you're doing <laughs> because she's operating it safely. We oh. know, yeah. So, uh, so Mele, you know, hi. we've uh, we've had you on on uh, your lunches that you do for the Hawaii Venture Capital Association is always very interesting because the panel that you usually assemble is always very timely, and of course, you know, there's uh, energy is is top of mind. There's the uh-huh. the uh, Asia Pacific uh, Clean Energy. Uh, summit. summit going on right now, but uh, tell us a little bit about your panel. Yeah, so we're really excited about the panel. Um, we've got some awesome panelists. Uh, we've got, and it, obviously, it made a lot of sense to do, to do this panel during uh, during the energy conference um, because we've got so many great people in town. Um, one person in particular, Rick Robertson, who's a senior director at GE Ventures, which play a major role in investments um, in the energy sector nationwide. Um, so we're very excited to be hearing his thoughts on a national perspective on what's going on in the investment community, um, especially in energy. Um, next up, we have Colin Yost, who's the COO of Revolution. So giving more of a company perspective and what's going on um, um, in, with energy, as well as Mark Glick, who is the energy administrator for the Hawaii State Energy Office. Mm-hmm. Um, so more of a government perspective. And then Tad Gwaltier, who's the VP of um, Hawaii Operations at STEM. And STEM's going to have a lot of really great things happening right now. They just closed the Series C round, a $45 million Series C round. So definitely a lot of uh, great panelists who, who are really relevant right now in energy. With uh, Rick Robinson uh, in the, on the panel, GE Ventures just did a, a big partnership with uh, the Energy Accelerator, right? Yes, so they are an official partner with Energy Accelerator. And speaking of which, Don Lippert will be the moderator for tomorrow from Energy Accelerator. That sounds great. So are you uh, expecting a, a big turnout? Uh, do you have a lot of folks coming in from the uh, the conference itself? It seems that way. There are a lot of names that I'm not recognizing. I took a glance at the attendee list so far. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a great extension of the conference and taking a deeper dive you know, into what is what is the state of funding, you know, energy and innovation, and what's going on? What's Hawaii's role? And um, I know they'll be doing a little bit of a of a glass ball, looking to the future and what these four individuals see um, for the future of energy, and especially Hawaii being in a unique position. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly always headlines about it. You had mentioned uh, STEM Inc. Uh, Tad's going to be on the panel, and they were one of the they, they were one of the companies that GE Ventures back as part of the Energy Accelerator, for example. Also notable at the same time that the announcement of the partnership with the Energy Accelerator was coming out was the news that Governor Ige was saying that he is not ready to fully back an ambitious uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG plant for Hawaii, saying that we should focus on renewables. And I imagine with uh, Mark Glick there, that's probably going to be one of the topics up for conversation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm i really looking forward to it. I just got the list of the questions for the panelists, and they're definitely going to be taking a deep dive. And the, 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 the list of four were really highly curated. We really wanted to get very specific people so we could take a deeper dive in that hour and a half uh, conversation time that we have. Now, this panel is going to be sponsored by uh, Honolulu-based energy startup as well. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, EcoCube, um, and they're more in the education space. They're a startup um, that's been going not very long, but um, you know we always welcome we always welcome luncheon sponsors to come, and, and they'll have a few minutes to speak before the panel, so uh, people get to know a little bit more about what they're doing. Right, that was started by Charles Wang. He was uh, with yeah. Revolution and Central before that, so mm-hmm. a lot of experience. So uh, this event, these events are always great. Wonderful bread pudding over there at the Plaza <laughs> Club, uh, 904th Street Mall. Bread pudding, uh, huh? That's what they're known for. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if somebody was interested in attending this very timely energy panel where all eyes are on Hawaii, uh, where and when is the event specifically, and where can they go yeah. for tickets? The event will be at the Plaza Club, which is at 900 Fort Street Mall in the Pioneer Plaza building. And it will be tomorrow, Thursday, at 11.30 and finishing up at 1.30. And you can go and get tickets at hbca.org, Hawaii Venture Capital Association. Well, that is great, uh, Mele. And, you know, drive safely, stay dry, <laughs> and hope you get to your destination uh, in, in, in one piece. Thank you, Bert. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thank you, Millie. Okay. Thanks, Millie. And uh, now joining us is Pony and Brandon Eskew, and they're here to tell us about the latest creation from Street Grinds called Makers and Tasters. We want to welcome both of you to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, Bert. Hi, Ryan. Welcome. Yeah. You know, we had you uh, both on, I think it was, uh, the first time was back in 2010 when the idea of... of, um, Food trucks. I mean, food trucks have been around for a little while. I mean, you, we, we had a lot of the lunch wagons and stuff like that. But now to actually have them all come together uh, and do, you know, the eat the street. And this was back in 2010. Yeah, I'd like to say, it says, finally, we've invited uh, Pony SQ from Street Grinds to talk about a tasty phenomenon taking to the streets of Honolulu. Wow. We were at well, the cutting novel. edge. We, what a new idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're on the air long enough, you can have a lot of these first-time events take place on the show. So we should get <laughs> caught up, uh, Pony. Um, for, first of all, how have things been? Because I certainly feel like I can't go not even in Mililani. Like everywhere I go, I see street grinds. Our th- things seem to be doing very well. You know, things have um, gone much further than we anticipated since our first interview with you back in uh, December of 2010. Mm-hmm. Um Brandon has the numbers and statistics better down than I do, but uh, we have had a a ton of events that we do uh, a lot in Kaka'ako and also around the neighborhood. Um, Do you have that number? Oh, I'm sure we've done over 250 events over the years. You know, and these events are major productions. You know, you have to get all the food trucks into one location, 
you know, there's there's menus that they have to deal with. There's all the logistics that you have to set up for people to actually participate. You got to get the marketing out there, and there's also, also the whatever the business deal <laughs> that takes place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really impressed that you've kept it going for five years. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a lot of due diligence to make sure that we have been able to knock on wood operate for the last five years in the food spectrum um, with uh, no incidents. Um, and when you're talking about thousands of people, that's no small, mm-hmm. small, yeah. small feat. Yeah, we average probably these days eight to 10,000 people um, per event. Um, and we do Honolulu Night Market and Eat the Street on a monthly basis. And so wow. when you're looking at sixteen to 20,000 people being fed um, on a monthly basis, then, you know, the risks are greater. And, and we do have a lot of steps and processes mm-hmm. in place that we, we try and hold um, fast in what we do for our production. And, so, you know, Brandon, you as also one of the heads of the company, it's not like you're sitting in your executive suite tweeting about the event. I mean, when I'm when I go to Anita Street, you're you're moving barricades, you're you're directing trucks. I mean, there there is all levels of operation. That's true. I mean, all of us at Street Grants pitch in for each event, whether it's carrying, moving, tweeting, and continuing to work with the vendors to build a strong relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, over the years, have uh, have you seen the number of uh, food trucks uh, increase, decrease, stay the same? What's the what's the general uh, consensus of of the, I guess, the business? Yeah, so um, we started with a network of twelve vendors. Mm-hmm. Today, we work with over two hundred and fifty mobile street food vendors, um, and and, wow. and in addition to that, we actually work with about three hundred um, retail vendors, and so our network has grown to well over five hundred different small business, locally owned businesses here on the island. Our mission and our goal as a company is just to continue as much opportunity um, outreach to these small businesses that just need an opportunity for exposure. Um, And, you know, I would say that we've been able to do it to the point where um, we constantly are trying to meet the demands of the growing industry. It is projected to grow um, another 50% in the next two to three years. And so we could substantially increase our, our customer count. And and with that, you can only imagine the demand, which is why we started going to the idea and the route of providing daily opportunities, which allows us to provide more than two events a month to mm-hmm. our vendors. And so that's what Makers and Tasters is all about, is these daily um, opportunities. And uh, our flagship, our first location that we'll be doing that at, is at the iconic um, Old Fisherman's Wharf, um, where we were able to secure um, with OHA that property to integrate a full-time food truck park in mm-hmm. Kakako. So so the idea is that uh, this location at the Fisherman's Wharf, I mean, it'll be dedicated to the whole makers maker-taster uh, uh, presence. There. Yeah, yeah. And, and is there kind of a guarantee that you'll be able to stay there for extended period of time? Or what's the deal on, on the location? We, you know, we've always, we do experience being transient ourselves. <laughs> and so um, OHA is working on a master plan 
in Kakako. And in the meantime, we've had the opportunity and privilege to secure the lot for a minimum of three and a half years um, or as long as it takes for them to finish their master plan in that neighborhood. Well, you know, I mean, one thing that's good about food trucks is they're mobile and certainly that's good. And you've been at 555 uh, South Street. You went to another lot also in Kakako. And and again, you're moving around the island. But I can certainly see and actually my coworkers have taken advantage of the fact that now they're not like, where are the food trucks to get something? Well, it's there. We can. We'll be there when we go down there. Exactly, and we've created it where there's a ton of creature comforts. So, um, plenty of seating, a three thousand square foot deck next to the oceanfront um, mm-hmm. side. Um, you know, I say we've grown up. Now we have legit bathrooms. If you've ever been to an Eat the Street, <laughs> our porta potties have you know carried us through these five years, and we've you know really worked hard on creating some creature comforts that you would look to have when you go out to eat at any kind of restaurant facility and so um nice seating an outdoor bar bathroom space um and like i said open 7 days a week um serving lunch and dinner so you know i'm curious uh, you know Brian and i do some smaller events and finding a venue is always a bit of a challenge but when you take it to this next level where you're looking for almost an entire city block how challenging is that? Oh, I mean, you know, we've become pros and experts at it. I, we've secured this spot is 66,000 square foot. And so it's got plenty of parking for day-to-day operations, but we can also expand our space into our new Eat the Street location. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we really are able to put it and uh, take it off the street or, you know, off of our, like I said, our various locations and go to a, a permanent spot that you can secure and and you know the geek meets and all the things that you guys do could ultimately end up at that location oh, as well. Oh, well that's an oh. excellent invitation. Yeah. <laughs> now Brandon when we first interviewed you back in 2010 of course there's always the logistics element there's the support that you provide to these vendors there's also the technology piece. Now with this permanent location does that change expand or strengthen the kind of services that you provide to the to the food trucks of the vendors that participate in Makers and Tasters? Uh, Ryan, it does. We've actually increased our offerings for support to the vendors. Of course, we started with uh, just paper and pencil, maybe some Microsoft Excel, and we've actually grown into a portal now that the vendors can manage you know, their activity into our events and where we can also manage their activity in our events through this online portal. And that's grown from a monthly interaction to now where it can be a daily interaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does this uh, does the makers tasters, uh, I guess, replace the location sort of uh, street grinds, eat the street events that take place across the island for Kakako only? Oh, so, I see, I see. yeah, so um, we we do we are looking for other permanent locations around the island. I just think as time um, goes on, you know, if you're really looking to be a, a um, I guess a business that's more full time. It's really hard in the streets to do that and have predict- predictable sales and that sort of thing. Our goal is to reach six permanent locations on hmm. the island, mm-hmm. um, and and like I said, with um, Kakako being our first location, you know we we've seen the demand out in Mililani. Right. We've mm-hmm, seen the mm-hmm. demand out in Eva Beach, and we know that there is an opportunity to provide this type of eating outdoor eatery type of feel um, throughout the island um, and offer that more opportunities to the food vendors to have um, 
daily transactions that people know where to find them, like you said, Ryan, and, and what times there will be there. And then also utilizing the apps that Brandon's created to um, communicate who's going to be at the Mililani lot if you were to go eat there tonight or who's in Kaka'ako. And so, you know, integrating technology, that's the benefit of, of Brandon in our organization. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Brandon, I want to hear a little bit more about this app because as Pony says, knowing that they're going to be there and that they're going to be open is key. There's a dessert shop on King Street that I gave up on because they just open <laughs> whenever they want and by the time you're there, they're gone. And even with Eat the Street, I, I love it when you come to Mililani, but when is that and how that goes? And I can already imagine a permanent location, say, in Haleiwa and stuff like that. So what does this app do for me as a user when I'm hungry and I want to find a food truck? Currently, our app is um, back-end based. It's a portal for our vendors to use. But what it does is it brings all that scheduling into one place that we could then expose to, whether it be a mobile app or another website that's that's public-facing. Mm-hmm. So as we open up our location, we can start exposing all these schedules for all the hungry people out there to find great food vendors. Oh, say an so, API for a developer to tap into for their city metro app? Definitely. So at what point do you see that becoming available? I mean, it's great that you have sort of this b- growing database, but uh, at what point do you think you might be publishing an API for people to build you know, a whole bunch of apps on? I don't know if the API will be published soon, but we definitely will expose the data uh, to um, our developers to then put onto a website. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Now, with this uh, Makers and Tasters launch, I would imagine there's going to be a big celebration that, or at least a, an opportunity for people to to specifically be introduced to it. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we have a, a, a very exclusive private preview tomorrow night. And if you want to be one of the 200 people that get to be a part of that, you would want to visit our website at makersandtasters.com and um, get your hands on one of the few tickets that we have left. Um, it's also a combined effort to raise additional funds. Um, it's kind of, it's our version of a, a, a Kickstarter. Right. Um, and so you get all you can eat from 25 food vendors, um, special music, as well as the preview to the new location that we have open. With the money, we're looking to um, invest in some incubator spaces for vendors who can't uh, necessarily avoid, um, I'm sorry, afford food trucks right now. But we want to be able to put them in a, in a space that really um, elevates their experience as it, well. In the last couple of seconds, I, 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 you know, I wanted to ask you this first, but I saved it to the end. But the maker part of Makers and Tasters, what is that? So we, you know, we've been known as street grinds all these years, and and really at the end of the day, we work with far more than just street food vendors. Uh, we we're working with Hawaiian Pie Company and and people who are small mom and pop shops, and and we've worked with um, artisans and artists. Mm-hmm. And so for us, our company is more um, well rounded to be described as a makers supporting agency rather than a street food supporting agency. Well, the tasters, on the other hand, that's, are the, that's you guys. <laughs> and so when we, what we've done over the past five years is combined the makers and the tasters community. And we really feel like that puts a good statement on what we do. Okay. All right. Well, Brandon, if someone wants to find more information on either this super exclusive event or just the makers and tasters uh, evolution in general, where can they go? You can visit us at makersandtasters.com. Fantastic. Thanks, Pony and Brandon, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Now, one last late-breaking reminder for our tech calendar. Um, The Hawaii Drone Club, run by uh, Ryan Salcedo, is having their monthly meeting, and tomorrow will be for the first time at the new Drones Plus store on Kapiolani Boulevard, right across the street from the Convention Center, our first full-time retail location for Quadcopters, a DJI partner. And there's if you're into drones, if you're into that kind of photography, if you want to see demonstrations or ask questions, 
that would be the place to be tomorrow, 7 p.m. at Drones Plus at the corner of Kapiolani and Atkinson. Sounds good. And of course, now we will take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Chris Sullivan and Dr. Jeffrey Watermill to talk about strong artificial intelligence. What's the difference between strong AI and regular artificial intelligence? We, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio, and you can tweet us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Patrick Miller. I'm the author of Living with Miracles. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about Living with Miracles, a common sense guide to A Course in Miracles. Sunday at noon. Next time on Living on Earth, How to save cash in the summer heat. Turn up the thermostat in our frigid offices. The general rule of thumb is 2 to 3% for each degree that you raise the temperature. So going from 72 to 77, you'd be looking at 10 to 15% energy savings. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Monday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And what kinds of science and technology go into building artificial intelligence? Will strong AI ever outperform human intelligence. And of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Joining us today is Chris Sullivan and Jeff Watermo, both from local R&D firm Oceanit. Chris is a senior aerospace engineer and Jeff is a senior scientist and director of AI at the company. Welcome, gentlemen, both of you to Bite Marks Cafe. Many thanks. Thank you for having us. Well, Jeffrey, we want to start with you and talk a little bit about just the the, the basics of what uh, artificial intelligence is. I mean, you know, we we've um, seen a lot of movies. We've uh, had the uh, introduction of, I guess, the direct response with with things like Siri and Alexa. Uh, are those examples of AI that have been worked on for like the last couple of decades? So, indeed, Siri, virtual assistants, those are the fruits of labor that have been conducted since the 70s or 60s, Mm -hmm, even when mm -hmm. artificial intelligence emerged as a uh, scientific research program. In the movies, the advanced robotics and the superintelligence is uh, some distance from uh, current uh, research. But the the field is uh, is a legitimate uh, scientific field of, uh, of inquiry beginning in mathematics and computer science and cognitive science. And uh, at present, 
AI is uh, continually emerging in, in new technologies. Now, one of the things we always hear about in AI is the Turing test, the blind uh, setup where if is a if an AI, if an artificial intelligence entity is successful, that it would be indistinguishable to another human that they're interacting with the machine. Although, from what I understand, that's a text-based interaction, which is, I would say, still a couple of factors below where we would imagine at this point what AI would be. Um, that's pop culture, though, probably. What are the measurements for a successful or a good AI implementation? So, in, indeed, Alan Turing did uh, observe, and we would concur, I think, that linguistic competence is determinative or is, uh, would manifest intelligence of all the human, uh, of all human faculties, languages unique to us, and it requires considerable intelligence, not in an explicit sense, but we have been you know, evolutionarily uh, evolutionarily pre-programmed with a very rich, innate uh, linguistic competence. And the facility to use language requires just enormous cognitive uh, complexity. So if there were any AI system that could be as fluent in language as even a two- or three-year-old, that would be far beyond anything that has been uh, been built today. Mm-hmm. Has uh, has uh, the Turing test been a good test to determine whether a system is actually intelligent? Uh, so philosophers had debated that since mm-hmm. 1950 when Turing wrote that paper because there are many loopholes and persons can be uh, deceived quite easily, in fact. If there are some chatbots that you've probably encountered on the Internet, sometimes they can be – you could think it's much more intelligent than it actually is. Uh, sometimes if you begin to talk with Siri, you could think she's more you – know, she has more intelligence, but when you look under the hood, it's actually quite uh, simple, mm-hmm. template-based, and so it's just – canned phrases are being returned to you. Uh, so if the, the, a proper Turing test conducted where you could really probe uh, the mind of the machine, have an open-ended conversation, not within a restricted domain, but uh, that could, in fact, be a good test of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, before we explore more about specifics of AI and maybe uh, talk about how we have to look beyond things like Siri, uh, I want some context in terms of Oceanet's interest in this. Now, your company is an R&D firm. You explore pretty much anything. If there was a local equivalent of the Stark Lab, it might be you guys because mm-hmm. you've got smart concrete. You've got beds that work like uh, Star Trek you know, sensor beds. You explore apps as well as complex engineering and mathematics that doesn't even manifest itself in something I can hold in my hand. So in this massive range of things that Oceanet invests its research into, um, where does the AI piece fit? Or is it yet another just opportunity for exploration? Well, I think it fits uh, in a lot of places. So we, we do look into a lot of areas and we're interested in in, in anything, um, basically. But um, uh, we've had an interest in artificial intelligence in the past based on personnel that are working at Oceanet um, that have that interest. Um, lately, it's gone to a, a slightly different direction uh, with uh, Jeffrey coming on board. Um, but it's so applicable to so many things that um, I, you know people will say that you could write you know a hundred proposals by just saying you know X plus artificial intelligence. That's my idea, right? And um, uh, so we're we're not trying to do that exactly, but uh, but. Um, it is going to enable a lot of things mm-hmm. um, over a lot of applications, which we can we can talk more about today. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, more I guess fundamentally, is there is there a definition of intelligence that people are using 
when referring to artificial intelligence? Well, we were just talking about that before uh, coming in. Oh, so you guys the room figured here. out what the definition is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I want to know. Yeah. So, uh, but but it's not that straightforward. So there's still a lot of debate over what is intelligence. And um, like Jeffrey was saying earlier, um, when we were talking about it, you you'll recognize it when you see it. Mm. Um, but uh, it's hard to define, except that um, it's a you know it's on an artificial substrate, and that it uh, uh, it has qualities of of in, of calculation uh, that a, a human could do uh, but um, and could perform a task that a human would normally do that would take human intelligence to do. Indeed, the intelligence or artificial intelligence would really be the, you know, the scientific in- inquiry into those tasks that when humans perform it require intelligence. So yeah, language, planning, problem solving, vision, domains which are computational in that there's information being manipulated in the mind. There are representations of the environment. Uh, the agent, the mind, needs to navigate itself within that environment. So complex computational tasks that a human obviously run on biological wetware, but in a computer would obviously exist on uh, an artificial substrate, mm-hmm. which has advantages over biology in that it's there's a super processing power, memory capacity. And so that's the that would be the engineering and technical reason to pursue it. And then there's just the scientific reason that Turing was interested in. He thought that by, he said, by building thinking machines, we'll learn more about how we think ourselves. So there's this parallel scientific and engineering uh, aspects AI that's quite exciting. We're talking to Chris Sullivan and Jeff Watermill from Ocean about artificial intelligence and, I think now, strong AI. But if you have a question about this area of research, about its integration with technology, you can give us a call and ask your question here with the experts of the island at 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands or 941-3689 here on Oahu if you are not bailing out your home. And of course, you can also tweet us on Twitter at Hawaii or at Bite Marks. Now, Jeff, this might be now pushing to the area of uh, metaphysics, but a lot of times, especially when we're referencing science fiction, is there an element or a question or a definition of sentience when we're talking about artificial intelligence, or is that a completely different area and that we're just looking for smart machines and not necessarily self-aware or personable machines? I'm very interested in consciousness and sentience uh, because those are obviously... To us, as we know, humanly, or we think they're human, uh, humanly unique properties. But there's no, even in pure academic research, uh, AI research directed to consciousness, just because it's such a difficult phenomenon to define. It's even more difficult to define than, uh, than intelligence itself. So consciousness is expected somehow to emerge as a function of information processing, perhaps given a sufficient level of organization of complexity. And it's difficult as Noam Chomsky, one of the researchers in AI, describes it, he says that it's difficult to formulate a theory of consciousness because we don't even know the proper question to ask. Mm. But The answer is 42, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's life, the universe, and everything. It's consciousness subsumed in that. That's the question. Um, so the pursuit of consciousness is, or the I think it's reasonable to pursue complex computational systems sort of artificial intelligence and not to be surprised if sentience and consciousness hmm. emerges. Well, 
you know, I love contemplating the idea of building an algorithm that determines uh, consciousness. But at a more fundamental level, when we talk about Siri or we talk about Alexa and we look at those as being sort of like, a, you know, this virtual assistant, but they're representing sort of this vast database of information that is now available in the cloud. And I think that, the, the you know, the popularity and the ability for this to become commercially available through, you know, whether it's uh, uh, in the case of Siri for the, with Apple and, and Alexa with uh, the uh, Amazon Echo, uh, is it because computing has reduced in price, storage has reduced in price, the cloud has reduced things uh, from, a, from an access standpoint? I mean, there's vast servers that are now housing all this data that is now more easily accessible. Is that really what we're looking at at this stage of AI as the way of, of, of basically searching and accessing this vast amount of data. Indeed, yes. So this is big data. This is the era of big data. And th- there are generally, at present, seen to be three factors contributing to this AI spring mm-hmm. we're in. Mm-hmm. It's the the uh, access to big data, the uh, increase in processing power of computers, Yeah, these massive parallel computers, um, even on really the software side, the formulation now of quantum algorithms for quantum computing has enabled some theoretical advances in how to search uh, big databases. And then three, there are new algorithms, these deep learning, deep searching algorithms, which are useful for searching big data, but in a rather unintelligent, brute force way, which is not what we're pursuing at OceanNet because we think there are more optimal, more elegant, more efficient ways. But accessing and searching that big data is is obviously very lucrative. That's why uh, Amazon and Google and IBM and Facebook and Twitter are all investing in AI you know, at extraordinary levels. So, the, in fact, it's interesting. Turing himself described all intellectual activity as a form of search. And you can think that when you're solving a problem or planning, it is formulating uh, a particular space of possibilities and navigating that. You're searching it. So if you had an intelligent way to perform a search, you would um, – I mean, an intelligent – searching system would be would be an AI and if that could be optimized it would uh, it would open many doors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now Chris I might be creating a false dichotomy here but I am still um, thinking about sort of the practical applications you're right that X idea plus AI equals grant proposal but you know uh, when I think about now, as we've discussed, sort of the difference between uh, something like Siri or Cortana or Alexa saying we're going to put a friendly face and a nice voice in front of a giant trove of data to make it more accessible uh, and uh, friendly to a human. And there's sort of the decision-making analysis, the the high-level computing and algorithms of AI. So now I'm wondering, is Oceanit's interest more on the decision-making and the processing and the thinking that comes with AI, or is there an element of the friendly, accessible, speaking-in-the-first-person side to make technology more uh, accessible to people? Is that something that Ocean is looking at as well? Um, I think uh, we're more interested in the sort of the bigger, grander applications. So um, one of the would be a really, really big application would be you know, curing cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so if uh, with a, a strong AI which um, program where you're looking at more linguistically competent artificial intelligence, um, you could then look at the vast knowledge uh, base uh, in cancer research and also um, just in general uh, biology and uh, microbiology 
And if you could understand all of the information in those documents, how it relates to other information, then you could potentially formulate or the AI could formulate um, an idea for how to cure cancer or what the, what the main things you have to go after to, to cure it. Mm-hmm. So in, instead of just trying to do um, uh, pattern matching and uh, sort of this weaker AI approach to, uh, to look for trends and capitalize on those or do keyword searches or that kind of thing, we're actually trying to build a program where you could understand information, the, the meaning of it, and how it relates to other information, and then use that. And that's very powerful because there's all these information stores all around. Um, but if you could actually bring them together in the meaningful way, then you could do really powerful things. And curing cancer is a huge thing, but it could be done at some point. So when you talk about a computer understanding or deriving meaning, how does that start to get programmed? Uh, and I think that's probably the difference between regular AI and strong AI is this level of understanding and meaning. And so what goes into the development of that platform? That's, that's a good question because we're, we're right in the middle of that right now. And um, it, from, from my perspective, it involves looking at how the human brain works because we're trying to model it after human-style cognition, not after, like, you know, dog-style cognition, which might be a different, <laughs> different type of AI. But, um, and, and, you know, humans, they uh, work in... Um, analogies a lot of times, reasoning um, in, in ways that are maybe more efficient for us. Um, so uh, like even in facial recognition, you can recognize, recognize a face on a small picture, on a large banner, you know, where um, uh, a, a, an image recognition system might have trouble with the scale or that kind of thing. But humans think in specific ways uh, that we, th- we think they th- that we think. <laughs> so we're trying to uncover those um, and then implement those uh, but it's it's very it starts off with basic things like trying to add two numbers the way a human would add two numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think this is probably a good time for us to take a short break because uh, I, I there's definitely some questions that I want to delve into, and I, I think we need to uh, sort of give us some time to make that uh, sort of mental transition. Mm. <laughs> We want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation. A great one about artificial intelligence with Chris Sullivan and Jeffrey Watermull and uh, talk more about... How far are we from achieving strong AI over regular artificial intelligence? Mm. We would love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. So please call 941-3689 or toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You can also reach us on Twitter at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. You are listening to ByteMarks Cafe. This week in This American Life. I walk around constantly just thinking about all, all the things that happened, okay? Constantly. It's on my mind. Every day. Every day. Chances are it has not been on your mind. Even though I would bet that the thing that he's talking about is something that you have heard of and you know about. What he's been thinking about this that you might be glad to be thinking also this week. Saturday afternoon at 1. Hi, my name is Barry Hyman. I'm an investment advisor and I manage the Hawaii office for FIM Group. We've been proudly supporting Hawaii Public Radio since we first opened our doors in 1997. It feels good to support something that that we value and we think it's great for the community. So we want to make sure that Hawaii Public Radio thrive. 
Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Chris Sullivan and Jeff Watamo from Oceanit about strong AI. And if you have a question about artificial intelligence, you can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, we wanted to um, sort of delve into this idea of the computer now being able to exhibit sort of intelligence. But I also want to explore this idea of learning. And what what does that actually mean when we're talking about a computer learning something? And in the process of learning, is it learning from something that is part of its being, whether it's sensors or, or something that connects it to the environment or whatever it's quote-unquote learning from? Yeah, so the majority of systems at present, these deep learning neural networks, as they're called, things like Watson or Google or Siri or Cortana, these are based on these deep learning algorithms which uh, soak up correlations from big data. And it's described as learning, but it's not learning in a human fashion. So, for instance, a child learning language is – a child doesn't really learn language. It's Noam Chomsky observed, a child is growing language, that the child has a program in its mind that's stimulated by the environment. It receives data, but it processes that data in a way that, it, uh, that makes sense and that's intelligent. So it's not – so the computer at present has no concept of what language is or represent, internal representation. It's merely finding patterns and associating patterns in the data. It can't infer causal relations – and so it's really mapping itself and rewiring itself to, res- to uh, resemble its input, whereas a strong AI system for it to learn is uh, accepting that data and processing it and using it to build internal representations of the environment and of that data to, over which it can reason and form complex uh, representations. So learning in the human style is quite far from anything that's currently being implemented in AI. And th- that's the reason for strong AI, not really to model human competence because we're interested in humans, but because humans seem to be optimal in many of these domains, mm. like learning, like language, uh, like planning and problem solving. So you'd want to implement that in a machine uh, because those are the best ways to do it. And evolution converged on it for us. Um, and so we're you know, we should recapitulate that for a for machines. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, you know, in technology, we always hear the phrase garbage in, garbage out, that you can't get something out of a system that's any better than what you provide it. And so when I'm hearing this uh, very high-level conversation about a t- machine being able to learn, or if we're talking about a Cortana or an Amazon Echo machine that can answer questions, it always sounds to me like you can always sort of mess it up because you quickly realize the bounds of the box in which it operates and you just amuse yourself by trying to bump it up against that that barrier. But when we're talking about strong AI, it sounds like we're saying we want this uh, technology to be able to think outside the box, to actually form a concept that was not even initially provided to it as a pathway. But that almost sounds like uh, impossible. I mean, uh, how would you articulate that 
challenge in the sense that we're giving a machine an X amount of X information, but it's not just doing math on that information. It's actually looking at it from different perspectives, for example. Well, I think um, the, uh, the the artificial intelligence has to have the the program and the the architecture to handle the information correctly. So um, you would build it up from a, a, a large number of what would be universal concepts. Um, and for me, a, a, you know, a, a really competent AI system would even have a concept of of physics, the laws of physics that there's up, there's down, there's left, there's right, or um, and so the, these fundamental concepts that are sort of universal um, then can form like more complex concepts and you kind of build from the ground up. But it has to have both the internal architecture to be able to handle these concepts and, and combine them together in a way that's useful. And then also it has, and it has to have the, uh, the concepts themselves. So there's a, there, and there is a, a, a good um, uh, bit of information out there on, on what are considered universal concepts um, that are in all languages, uh, eventually would be part of our uh, universal translator, mm-hmm. um, like you see on Star Trek. Um, and uh, it, it, but you need the, those two elements at least, this um, sort of a group of fundamental ideas and ways to combine them uh, so that those ideas are built on other ideas and have context and have meaning. And then the AI system, you know, eventually could construct or compose its own ideas that have never been thought before. So the idea of a strong AI looks like it's it's building the the foundation, the building blocks, far different from what perhaps AI has already built over the last many decades. So it's like re-looking at the the challenge, the problem, and identifying the new building blocks that need to achieve this sort of cognitive skill that this computer now has? Yeah, so the original idea for AI was strong AI. So in 1956, mm-hmm. the great uh, pioneers of AI did have the idea of having a machine that would be linguistically competent, that could reason and plan and solve problems. But it was seen to be a very difficult problem. As we were describing, even having a machine add two numbers is a non-trivial uh, feat. And we we see children learn language. We think that's simple, but it is extraordinarily difficult. There's no you know computer that could learn a language like a human can. So there have been these springs and winters in AI since the 1950s. And whenever there's a new spring, persons become very excited. They think uh, the singularity is near. They think strong AI will emerge. But then there's people realize the difficulty of the task. And so then there's an AI winter when there's less investment and less. Uh, hmm. less Are we interest. so? You, I think you mentioned earlier that we're sort of in a spring. So there's a lot of invest. I mean, even Facebook came out with M. Not to. I mean, today I think uh, as their virtual assistant, but it's basically the same model as we were talking earlier about AI and big data. The idea of strong AI and the amount of research and time and effort that's gonna that it will take to build something that uh, actually learns in, in the way that you've you know, described, let's say, learning language, um, it's going to take a lot longer. And are the investments, are the, are, is the money still there to, I guess, seed fund that kind of an effort, uh, given the fact that, you know, all the big companies are putting a large amount of investment into sort of this big data and deep learning and searching through the, the you know, their databases, because that's where the money is. I think uh, what we're seeing is that uh, well, a lot of money is going into sort of the, the deep learning um, approach, but there are certain problems that it's not solving that well. 
And those are the ones that we're, we're trying to address. Um, so when you're trying to find actual meaning, um, like imagine if, you're, if you wanted a, to an artificial intelligence to look at a video and summarize it for you. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. what just happened in that video? It can't be done right mm-hmm. now by, mm. by deep learning. Um, but if you have a, a strong AI that has um, uh, competence to, you know, like a human does, manipulate these 3D models in their head, um, when they're thinking of something, then you could, you could even formulate stories. And there's there's stories that are again almost universal that it can uh, that it can um, uh, reference, and um, again build up from these other ideas. But there are there's definitely applications that are not um, uh, being served well by deep learning. So we're we're trying to focus on those. Right. You know, we're talking to uh, Chris Sullivan and Jeffrey Watermill from Oceanit about artificial intelligence and strong AI. If you got a question or comment, feel free to give us a call, 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We want to welcome Fernando from Kailua to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Hey, Ryan and uh, Bert. Um, had a question for your panel. You know, some of the most brilliant minds in technology, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk have expressed real concerns about strong AI. Some have likened it to an extinction extinction event should it ever come to pass. So I wondered if your guests could address those concerns. I'm assuming they don't share those concerns. Um, so I'd like to hear from them uh, why they do not. Uh, pleasure speaking with you, and I will take my answer off the air. Thank you. All right. Actually, I think that's a very reasonable question because especially if we are making reference to science fiction, not all AI scenarios end happily for the humans in the story. So um, as we develop technologies that can optimize systems, how do we know that the optimized system doesn't just naturally conclude that we are the weakest link and the solution is to remove us, Jeff? Indeed, that uh, is a question that's frequently posed to us. (laughs) And the scenarios you see in films are generally doomsday scenarios. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps the film Her is an exception. Um, AI, the film itself with the small child, that's you know, it's a AI version of Pinocchio. But the majority are Terminator and other films <laughs> of that mm-hmm, nature. Mm-hmm. And it's those are interesting films and exciting. But I think there's a good reason to think that AIs will be uh, super, or there's as they're as likely to be super moral as they are to be super immoral, because. If we expect them to be super intelligent, if we look at human history, as we have become more civilized and educated and intelligent, uh, we've become less violent over time by any metric, by any measure. So, And if you think of morality as being based on all, all, morality, all moral systems ever discovered by anthropologists and documented in religion and, non, and in non-religious systems, they're based on universal concept of what, you know, the equivalent of the golden rule, or you know, respecting the interests of others, because uh, it's in your interest to have your to have your rights respected. So there's this there's this logic to morality, and so if AIs are ultra logical, they should perhaps even be ultra moral. So I am not as concerned with doomsday scenarios. And as a further consideration, if you think that whatever the future of AI is, if it is strong AI. And so hence the implementation, the mind in these AIs is, is human in some sense. Um, in the future, those machines, in what sense are they not us? Um, they're just a future version of us, just in a different substrate, perhaps ah. not in you know, biology, but they're in, you know, they're in uh, silicon. So 
there's no sense in that sense they wouldn't be you know taking us over or dominating us. It'd just be the next stage in our in our evolution. Well, Jeff, I like your optimism, although I can hear a lot of our listeners when you say, well, we're becoming more moral and less violent and more intelligent that, you know, those might be like, I'm not sure if those facts are in evidence. Uh, the, the, Chris, those, those facts are well evidenced, I would argue. <laughs> Chris, can you promise that AI might not necessarily be connected to a uh, chainsaw or something, just just in case? Or the downfall of what, the human race? <laughs> right. Well, I, I'd say, you know, I've thought about it a bit. We've, we've talked about it a lot. Um, and... I do feel that, uh, you know, the, personally, the opportunity to create moral AI is, is something that I, I'd like to be involved with. Um, so, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, I do worry about it sometimes. <laughs> but but, um, but I, I do agree with, with Jeffrey that, um, that uh, it's something that we can um, – we can – we can work on and that it, that AI itself will be uh, logical and will um, it will it will learn what we teach it um, so so I have some hope I guess that. oh and, Jeffrey and in fact uh, we do have some work on this in fact we are working on uh, just as we're designing algorithms for a linguistic grammar for our AI it should have a moral grammar which is that if we ourselves and AIs are running algorithms. We run it on our brain. They run it on their uh, CPUs. That there should be an algorithm for morality. So discovering that is, in principle, as possible as discovering the the algorithm for for language. And in fact, there's good reason to think that the computations and representations involved in our linguistic competence could be quite analogous to those involved in our moral competence. Such that if you had a properly designed Morality it would be a human-like morality, just as if you had a properly designed uh, linguistic grammar, it would be a human-style grammar. So if you, if you have the science right, if you have the theory of how the mind works correctly, then you shouldn't be uh, any more fearful of, a, of an AI than you should of a human. And now that's more of your, more of your <laughs> yeah, philosophy right. of I, humanity. I, yeah, I have, a, I have a question for you about the, you know, the, the morality uh, algorithm. I mean, depends on who programs that. And is, is morality mm. – as defined as, uh, you know, let's say grammar, because grammar has a pretty straightforward syntax and morality could be subjective across different cultures, right? So how would you determine that the morality that's programmed for this AI is mm -hmm. the one that should reign? Are you talking about like Asimov's robots rules? Or? Oh, the, there's so yeah, <laughs> there's uh, many loopholes in those, but... Uh, <laughs> So, with respect to the yeah the subjectivity of morality or its uh, cross cultural differences, languages too. Obviously, there are universal principles of language, and then there are uh, parameters that can be set. So, all languages have word order, for instance. But a child uh, learning language sees that oh well, in English, prepositions come before objects, whereas in Japanese it's the other way mm -hmm, around. Mm -hmm. So, but no child is pre-programmed to learn Japanese versus English. If you have a child born in Japan, it'll learn Japanese. If it's born in Hawaii, it'll learn English and vice versa. So the child has a principle of word order, but it has a parameter to set to be uh, you know, uh, prepositions or, or postpositions. And equivalently, there'd be perhaps universal principles of morality, things like you know, the golden rule, which is, you know, has many formulations of mm. you know, Immanuel Kant had the idea of the categorical imperative, which is equivalent to the golden rule. We see it in religion as well. And so that could be perhaps a universal principle, but then that could be parameterized for a specific uh, culture. And you could think you'd probably want your AI to be 
to be uh, to implement these universal principles, and then yeah, different people in different cultures will be using and interacting with these AIs. So perhaps they'll parameterize their moralities to be more consistent with their traditions and mores and. Well, I, 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 all I can say, Jeff, is I hope you're right. Now, uh, Chris, now this was a very, uh, really uh, interesting conversation. Of course, we're running out of time, but very quickly, now that we're moving into the AI spring, is there a milestone you're looking to achieve? Is there a near-term goal, or is this um, really just you're going to move as fast as you can at Oceanit with this and just see what it brings up? Well, um, I'd say in the near term, we, we have some specific applications that we're trying to develop. And uh, one of them is uh, basically a virtual assistant, but uh, a more competent virtual assistant. So um, it should be able to uh, summarize your emails um, uh, and even, you know, could be used as a spam filter and that kind of thing. Mm. But um, something that's linguistically competent that functions like I wish Siri functioned. <laughs> so I think of um, um, some uh, sci-fi movies where the, you know, the scientist is interacting with his computer. And when he tells the computer, you know, from now on when I say this, it means this. And they understand it. And they remember. I'd like a, an AI that could actually understand. So. Oh, I'd like to beta test that app with you. Okay. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, I'm excited and I want to see this uh, app when it comes out. And we'll be keeping an eye on Oceanit and, of course, uh, Oceanit.com. And Chris Sullivan is the senior aerospace engineer. And, of course, Jeffrey Watermull is a senior scientist over at Oceanit. And we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we learn about the latest mission of the Falkor. You know, that series, just lovely. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band that I love. It's Yola Tango and a song called Friday. I'm in love. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. I don't care if Monday's black, Tuesday, Wednesday, heart attack, Thursday, never love.